Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Research Centre and I'm here to welcome you in the first instance to remind you that this is a monthly series to keep your eye open for our other talks subsequently but mostly to introduce Rick, Rick Kuhn uh, and this evening's book that changed humanity. Now Rick I'm going to start by asking you a question. Are you a Marxian economist or a Marxist economist? I'm not just an economist, I'm a Marxist should call it. Historical materialist. Thank you. All right, then you're an because I've got what I've got is a Marxian economist, and I notice there are two camps, two types of people: one who call them Marxian and one who call them Marxist. I prefer Marxist. I like it's the way that punches Okay, Rick Kern is a Marxist economist, but he's in fact um, a a total Marxist, right? <laughs> Political analyst and currently an adjunct reader here at the Australian National University. He was the founding editor of the online journal Marxist Interventions and long-time member of the Trotskyist organisation Socialist Alternative. Rick was also the convener of Act Now, the umbrella anti-war organisation in Canberra formed in response to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He was awarded the ACT Trades and Labor Council May Day Award, and I quote, in recognition of his significant contribution to improving and advancing the social and industrial conditions of ACT workers. And he has written extensively on Marxist, not Marxian, economy. And his best known works are, and he's just given them to me, Henry Grossman and the Recovery of Marxism. I'll put these outside later so you can all have a proper look. Uh, with Tom Bramble, Labour's Conflict, Big Business Workers and the Politics of Class and Class and Struggle in Australia, a book that he's edited. Right? Uh, so who better to introduce us to the manifesto of the Communist Party than Rick Coon. Welcome Rick, please. The primary intention of the Communist Manifesto was political. It was pervaded by the view, to use the words of Engels, that I'm sure that you've read in the preface to the 1888 English language edition of the manifesto, the, the premise that the emancipation of the workers must be the act of the working class itself. It was designed to con convince workers to act. So it makes both rational and also emotional appeals. The Manifesto is a foundational work both as the first confluence of the traditions of, democrat of democracy and of socialism and also as an exposition of scientific socialism. And really, I could leave it there. That's, that's the guts of the Communist Manifesto. A, a call to act. It's a long way to come. And also, <laughs> the... the uh, the first intersection of these two traditions and an exposition of the recently established historical materialist perspective, the scientific socialist perspective. It was published in February 1848. Marx finished writing it earlier in the month. And uh, it was, it, Marx drew on a draft communist catechism by Engels. And here is a facsimile that I picked up in uh, East Berlin just after the fall of the wall. Uh, a very good thing indeed. Uh, both the fall of the wall and the manifesto. Uh, it was, in an important way, a highly prophetic work in the very short term. Its opening line, a spectre is haunting Europe, a spectre of communism, was very rapidly realised in the revolutions of 1848. 
These began in Paris, some people, people might say Sicily a little bit earlier, but really in Paris on the 22nd of February 1848. Primarily nationalist and democratic revolutions, nevertheless in the course of these, particularly in the more developed parts of Western Europe, the working class first began to pose political demands, to raise social questions as they were known at that stage. The June days in Paris in 1848 were one of the symptoms of the working class stepping onto the stage of history or of mainland European history for the first time. It was written for the Communist League and note that it was not written for the Communist Party because Communist Party or party at that stage had the meaning of current or tendency or movement. It was written for an organisation the Communist League, but with a wider audience. It was designed to orient both members of the League, who had been won over to Marx and Engels' perspective uh, over the past few years, but also as an orientation for workers who were dissatisfied with the established order and looked towards social change. Now, before we get into the guts of this fairly small document, I want to examine a, a misinterpretation and some limitations of the manifesto. In addition to its analytical purposes, the manifesto had an inspirational function. It was a manifesto. It wasn't some scholarly tome or article, I guess we would call it these <laughs> days. It was rather a call to action. And the reassurance that history is on the side of the workers that is expressed in the manifesto has been interpreted as Marx having some sort of a mechanical conception of the development of history. This is utterly false. This was a way of building working class confidence and what was the bloody point of writing a manifesto if history was going to roll on all by itself anyway? <coughs> so. That's a, a common misinterpretation of Marxism. It's, it's some sort of mechanical uh, analysis of social development. The manifesto made a bunch of predictions and some of these were highly foreshortened and simplified the course of actual revolutionary development and particularly of working class consciousness. Another limitation of the manifesto is that it comes out of an early stage in the development of historical materialism and in particular Marx's analysis of the logic of capitalist development, the economic logic of capitalist development. So the distinction that is fundamental to Marx's labour theory of value between labour and labour power is not in the manifesto. The conception of economic crisis in the manifesto, while very striking in its expression, is fairly primitive compared with the analysis in Volume 3 of Capital. And the reference to the disappearance of intermediate social classes is something that Marx does not pursue. Uh, he, he discusses intermediate classes at some considerable length uh, in the three volumes of Capital. So the manifesto provided an orientation to workers. And it provided an orientation based on the perspective that Marx and Engels had worked out, not on the basis simply of their understanding of political economy, history and philosophy, although that was a substantial understanding, but also and crucially on the basis of the actual experience of workers in Europe. The manifesto is not simply the product of a couple of brilliant minds, although I think that is the case. It's also the synthesis of practical experience by the English working class in particular and the Chartist movement especially and also the working class on the continent in France and also in Germany. Despite their subsequent elaboration of this approach, the manifesto remains a vital reference point for Marxists today. It's also, I think, an impressive literary work, both in German and in the classic translation that Engels wrote the 1818 introduction for by 
a mate of, uh, of Brent, Samuel Moore. This was not the first translation. There had been an unauthorised translation already in 1848. It wasn't entirely satisfactory. The contrast between the opening lines, I think, is symptomatic. A horrible hobgoblin that stalks throughout <laughs> Europe. <laughs> uh, so Engels subsequently uh, commissioned a, a, a superior work of, I think, great literary merit. Okay, now, uh, in, in to plunge into the manifesto itself. The first part is an outline of the materialist conception of history, establishing that the relations of production, that is, class relations, not simply economic relations, but relations among social classes, are the basis for the understanding of history. This is Marxism as science. And it may come to, as a, have come to, as a surprise to those of you who read the manifesto for the first time, to have read the early part of that first part of the manifesto, which is a paean of praise to capitalism mm. as a progressive mode of production. Marx and Engels wrote, well, primarily Marx, the bourgeoisie historically has played a most revolutionary part. And that was because the capitalist mode of production had so dramatically increased the productivity of human labour. The labour that was required to produce, I don't know, a, a kilogram of wheat in the 18th century had been much diminished by the 19th, and then you compare it to today with combine harvesters and so on. Capitalism has dramatically increased the productivity of human labour. And capitalism dissolved old, antiquated social relations and some illusions while creating others. So there's the, the famous line, all that is solid melts into air. And you may remember back to the 1990s where people discovered something called globalisation. <laughs> well, globalisation is a feature of capitalism. It's been going on for a long time. And the manifesto says the need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. And despite the account of economic crisis in the manifesto being somewhat embryonic, nevertheless, there is a conception of crisis there that capitalism is an inherently crisis-prone economic system. So the revolt of modern productive forces against the modern conditions of production, which gives rise to economic crises and a series of other contradictions in capitalism, is characteristic and an unavoidable aspect of the capitalist mode of production. And there is an indictment that applies today. The capitalist class is unfit to rule because it is incompetent to, incompetent to assure an existence to its slave within his slavery, because it cannot help letting him sink into such a state that it has to feed him instead of being fed by him. And I think the way we should interpret this is that while capitalism has dramatically increased productivity, it has dramatically increased living standards, including for many, many workers, it cannot do so in a consistent way. Because it is prone to periodic economic crises, the most recent of which is not far behind us, and if we are to believe such subversive uh, analytical organisations as the IMF and the World Bank, <laughs> the next may not be too far into the future. The manifesto also deals with the phenomenon of commodification, especially the commodification of labour, a concept that Marx transformed into a concept of labour power subsequently. The creation and dependency of the working class as a cr crucial condition of capitalist production, but a working class which at the same time has an interest in overturning capitalism and has tremendous potential power. That is, the working class as capitalism's grave digger, 
grave digger who can liberate not only itself but also humanity. The second part of the manifesto, Proletarians and Communists, is really about the communist program. The perspectives that communists have in their day-to-day -day political activity rather than some sort of a utopian model. And there are two fundamental aspects to this. The first is internationalism. The communists point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat, independent of all nationality. And the second aspect, fundamental aspect of the communist program is a perspective that goes beyond the short term. In the various stages of development which the struggle of the working class against the bourgeoisie has to pass through, they always and everywhere represent the interests of the movement as a whole. In other words, in the struggle to achieve reforms and to improve the lot of the working class in the here and now, the communists always have in mind and shape their engagement with the contemporary struggle with a perspective of workers' revolution. The communists participate in all the struggles, all of the progressive struggles of the working class. This section, this part of the manifesto also debunks various illusions which are very widespread still today about private property, individualism, so-called freedom, the family, and nationalism. And it goes on to talk about the nature of workers' revolution. And this is extremely important given the distortions of Marxism, both by its explicit opponents and also by its uh, supposed proponents. Stalinists who, depart, who used the vast corpus of Marx's uh, work, Marx and Engels' work, to justify a total distortion and reversal of Marxism. So on the nature of workers' revolution, the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class, to win the battle of democracy. <coughs> this is Marx and Engels unifying somewhat long-standing traditions of socialism and democracy which had not intersected in this way previously. There follows a series of measures which are, are not a fundamental aspect of the Communist Manifesto. They have some historical interest and I'm not going to go into them. There is then, at the end of the section, some discussion, I think, of what Marx and Engels would later refer to as the withering away of the state. If by means of a revolution it makes itself the ruling class and as such sweeps away by force the old conditions of production, then it will, along with these conditions, have swept away the conditions for the existence of class antagonisms and classes generally and will thereby have abolished its own supremacy as a class. In the place of the old bourgeois society, with its class, classes and class antagonisms, we shall have an association in which the free development of each is a condition for the free development of all. The section on, the, so, on socialist and communist literature uh, has, still has some relevance. The critiques that are applied to other so-called socialists of the age are applicable to some political and intellectual currents today. So there is a, condemn a condemnation of do-goodery, charity and philanthropy. There is an expose of reforms like deregulation, corporatisation, privatisation today. These are, these are what Malcolm Turnbull talks about as reforms. And there is also a, a recognition of the achievements of the utopian socialists Fourier, Saint-Simon, and Robert Owen, but also a statement that their work has been superseded. They drew castles in the air before the working class was a significant political actor. Their blueprints are not 
what they're important for, although there are still utopians who go off into little communes, whether urban or rural, and try and construct a society separate from capitalism in a way that is simply impossible. The utopian socialists were important because of their critique of capitalism. The final section of the manifesto deals again with the question of engagement with existing struggles. It re-emphasises the participation of communists in the struggles that the working class is actually waging at present. And the way in which, in those immediate struggles, they have a, an eye on the revolutionary goal. The communists fight for the attainment of the immediate aims for the enforcement of the momentary interests of the working class, but in the movement of the present, they also represent and take care of the future of that movement. So there's a bit of repetition in the manifesto. <coughs> That's deliberate. It's an emphasis on its most important elements. Now, those of you who've done your background reading, who've done your homework, hopefully will also have read the prefaces. There's a little bit of repetition in them as well, but there, there is also some, and in particular one very, very important innovation in comparison with the manifesto. And Marx and Engels, in a preface that they wrote together before Marx's death, emphasise this innovation. And it was an innovation that derived from working class experience, the experience of the Paris Commune, the first time in history in which the working class actually held political power. Very circumscribed, only lasted a couple of months. It was confined to a very big city, but only confined to Paris. But there, Marx and Engels saw a refinement of their conception of what winning the battle for democracy meant. It meant establishing a new kind of a state. The working class cannot simply lay hold of ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. The working class had to establish a new, radically more democratic form of rule, which they referred to elsewhere as the dictatorship of the proletariat. And, pro and dictatorship in the 19th century, like party, had a somewhat different meaning. It wasn't Hitler and Mussolini and you know generals with vast amounts of braid on them. It was rather a period of emergency rule. It's a term that comes from the, uh, the Roman Republic. Emergency rule by the working class through democratic institutions like the commune itself, or like, we might add, like the original Soviets, the workers' councils in Russia. Now, the tense of this series does not apply very well to the Communist Manifesto. Rather than being a book that has changed humanity, it is one that fundamentally will have changed humanity. And if you're interested in that project, <laughs> then, then I suggest that you get hold of a copy of Red Flag, uh, which seeks to uh, pursue in a practical way the goals of the Communist Manifesto and its inspiration. to those workers and other workers who thought, wanted to explore the world and were literate for that reason, the manifesto is important. And of course, the message of the manifesto was not confined 
to what was in the little booklet, what was in the brochure. It provided an orientation for workers who might have looked at the manifesto, have read the manifesto, when they talked to their fellow workers on the job. So the question of literacy is, is relevant, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Certainly, there, there wasn't virtually universal literacy in the working class, but it was widespread enough that the message could get out and it could percolate through the social media of the day, which was <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Uh, it's always intrigued me that the place in which the first democratically elected communist government was Kerala in 1957. I don't know whether you want to Carolina. Kerala in South Africa. Kerala, 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 Communism on a larger scale, like in Russia and China, did not take place in India. What is the reason? The question is, why did it not take place? The communism did not take place in India. Well, my, my knowledge of Indian history is pretty limited. But I think that we can, we can generalise this question. I don't think that there was a a workers' revolution in China at all. I, I ruled China out. The workers' revolution in China happened in 1926 and it was smashed. And the reason why it was smashed is one of the reasons, I think, why uh, the revolutionary workers' movement uh, has been set, was set back in many places in the world, including in India, and that is Stalinism. So China, which I know a little bit more about, in terms of the workers' movement. In 1926, as the Northern Expedition moved up coastal China, workers liberated Shanghai. They took over Shanghai, and then they threw open the gates of Shanghai to the Guomindang army under Chiang Kai-shek, who proceeded to slaughter the militant workers of Shanghai and spread that purge across the areas which the Guomindang controlled. That policy of being not, not simply allied with the Guomindang, but being inside the Guomindang was a, a policy of the Communist International already in the process of Stalinization. And I think that the degeneration of the Russian Revolution and the implications of that degeneration for the understanding of Marxism and also particularly importantly for the organisation of the workers' movement, dramatically undermined the capacity of workers' organisations to challenge capitalism across the world, including in India. That, that's the way I've avoided your question. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think it has much to do with imperialism? Well, uh, imperialism is, I think, a necessary feature of, of capitalism and uh, clearly the, the Indian working class had to deal with both the Indian capitalist class and uh, British imperialism as well but my answer I'm, I'm afraid has to rest on generalities. Thank you. Andrew? I have two questions for you. The first is um, which society or state would you regard as having come closest Second is, what did he have to say about the institutions through which the um, the uh, dictatorship of the proletariat would work? I think that the working class actually did hold state power in Russia for a period of time from the November or October revolution in 1917. So in terms of practical concrete lessons, I think there's a lot to be learned from the early Soviet Republic. Not perfect, but you think about um, the legalisation of homosexuality. Where did that first happen in the world where, where homosexuality previously had been criminalised? Bolshevik Russia. You think about the legalisation of abortion rights, women's rights to control their own bodies. Where did that first happen in the world? Russia uh, after the revolution. 
where were there systematic attempts to overcome racism in the form of national chauvinism? Russia in this period as well. So I think that there is much to be learnt uh, in Russia before the degeneration of the revolution, a degeneration that occurred primarily because the revolution was isolated. The revolution was a gamble. The Bolsheviks, including actually Stalin at the time, recognised that it was a gamble. Russia was backward. The working class in Russia, while highly concentrated in some of the biggest factories in the world, particularly the, the massive Putilov arms work in, uh, in Petrograd, Petersburg, uh, was 5% of the population. And the Bolsheviks, the leadership of the Bolshevik party, the organisation recognised the revolution was a gamble on its spreading to other parts of Europe and in particular Germany. It was a gamble that seemed for a period to be paying off. The Kaiser was brought down by a workers' revolution in Germany. And revolution spread across Europe. Those revolutions, unfortunately, were defeated and the Russian Revolution was isolated and I think that is an historical materialist explanation of the defeat of the Russian Revolution. So in the course of the 1920s, the dictatorship of the proletariat degenerates into the dictatorship of a highly centralised, undemocratic bureaucratic state capitalist ruling class, I think is the scientific way of describing <laughs> it. So that by the end of the 1920s, nothing was left of the achievements of the revolution. Marx didn't write about the Russian Revolution, although he wrote a little bit about Russia, but I won't go into that. He did talk about the Commune in Paris as being an example of workers taking power. Now, the working class in Paris was not as developed, as well organised as the working class was in Russia. But nevertheless, they, they uh, established a far more democratic system of government that had, than had previously existed anywhere in the world, with a significant flaw in that uh, the suffrage was not extended to women, although women workers were highly organised in the course of the commune itself. The Russian Revolution and the Soviets, both in 1905, during the uh, defeated revolution of 1905-1906, and then their re-emergence in 1917, presented a more developed form of workers' organisation, not based on uh, electoral districts, the, the arrondissement of, uh, of Paris, but rather based on elections in workplaces based on workers' power where they are most powerful, that is, at work. So I think that that provides some uh, indication of the kind of organisation that is uh, likely to form part of a dictatorship of the proletariat when the working class again takes political power into its own democratic hands. And I think you've answered the first question as well to some extent. I think it's a commonplace that um, we bury communism around about 1989. And I'm wondering, do you know of any vibrant Marxist movements you know, around the place these days? <laughs> <laughs> you asked for that, Dorothy. <laughs> vibrant, vibrant, but not big. I, I have to. I have to emphasise. And there are Marx. There are Marxists. Yes. Yes. We, we are the largest Marxist far-left organisation in Australia, but with 350 to 400 members, um, we don't have state power in our sites quite yet. There, there are there are Marxist organisations. Turn that off. <laughs> there are Marxist organisations elsewhere, and there are some that are significantly larger. But uh, the heritage of the elsewhere. elsewhere, yeah, in other, in other countries, yeah. The heritage of Stalinism still weighs fairly heavily. I mean, significant elements of the left, including uh, the left that was critical of Stalinism, Trotskyist organisations were demoralised by uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. Uh, but the lifeblood of Marxism 
isn't just uh, a bunch of uh, clever pants in tiny little revolutionary sets. It's actually uh, the activities of the working class itself. So the importance of Marxism and Marxist organisations is as institutions that maintain a memory for the working class, that maintain uh, an awareness of traditions and of modes of struggle that the working class has passed through and knowledge that has been gained and that other institutions like you know, the Australian newspaper are not keen to help maintain. <laughs> Last night at the Socialist Alternative Branch meeting, we discussed the strike today of the Community and Public Sector Union in Canberra. A very good thing, but this comes two and a quarter years after the beginning of uh, this current wage campaign. And one of the problems is that the leadership of the CTSU doesn't know, doesn't know and doesn't want to actually seriously mobilise its membership. Doesn't know, because most of the leaders uh, weren't, men weren't men well, a lot of the leaders weren't actually rank and file members of the union ever, but they're relatively young and have not been members of a union that's engaged in serious struggle. And being an old bugger and being a former public servant, I was actually a public servant uh, during the late 18, uh, 1870s? <laughs> <laughs> the late 1970s and into the 1980s when the CPSU, or its predecessor, one of its predecessors, the Administrative and Clerical Officers Association, actually did engage in some very impressive struggles, notably a six-week strike by social security workers uh, in New South Wales. So one of the tasks of a revolutionary organisation is to try and keep alive traditions of how to organise, keep in sight the, the ultimate goal of workers' organisation and to try and inform the struggles of day, today with those past lessons. Now, the amount of informing that one can do, can, can do, despite the fact that there's virtually universal literacy and everybody can read our newspaper, uh, is limited by the size of the organisation. But I think that such organisations are a vital part of ensuring that workers' revolution the next time it happens, and it will happen again because of capitalism's contra contradictions, because capitalism is inherently crisis-prone, because there are fundamental contradictions of interest between bosses and workers. Revolution will happen again. The question is, under what circumstances and will it be successful? And their organisation is very important. Hang on, I've got one here first and then I'll come up with that. Uh, thank you. you uh, <coughs> excuse me, you mentioned the word revolution. Uh, I just wondered if we bring this to the present and the future and what a Marxist analysis of the current and future situation is in relation to what is called in Germany and is being taken up in China, um, who are the second biggest group involved with this, is Industry 4.0 or the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, I wonder whether there's a Marxist analysis that looks at the Internet of Things, digitalization, the communications that go with this in particular, for spreading messages, which could be very useful, and plans, which could be very useful. Is a Marxist analysis saying this is the fourth stage of <coughs> capitalist event, or is it saying this could be the foundation for the workers' revolution of the future in a, in a different way? Did everybody get that? At the back, we're talking about the... Right, thank you. Well, Marxism is not a technological determinism. First, so some of this technology, bam, fucking tastic, you know, really brilliant, but by itself, it is not going to transform social relations, which is what Marxism is about, it's class relations. I think that you're right. The, the idea of communism in the sense of a society in which the state has withered away, there are no classes and there is general abundance, is getting closer and closer in terms of, and more and more plausible in terms of 
what we can do and how we can coordinate our activities. And in particular, how we can engage in effective planning and uh, uh, information technology you know, makes, makes it much more plausible. I think it's, it's conceivable with old technologies, but relatively straightforward, I think, uh, with, with modern sorts of technologies. And certainly, the new technologies have been deployed by revolutionaries in order to advance their cause and the cause of the working class. And there was, there was uh, much twittering about the role of social media in the Egyptian revolution several years ago, the, the role of social media there. However, it may not have escaped your notice uh, that the powers that be use this technology too. There is nothing inherently liberatory in technology. It's a question of the social relations within which it is deployed. And I think that there's a danger of gee-wizzery, thinking that by itself the te technology will, will change uh, fundamental power relations. And I don't, I don't think that that is the case. It opens up new possibilities once those power relations uh, have been brought down. But while they still exist, ruling classes, capitalists are immensely inventive and creative, particularly when that power is challenged. They will and are seeking to deploy these technologies. Could you say that a bit more loudly? <laughs> I just want to get a reference. I'm sorry, I've got a couple up the back here and then I'll come back to you. Currently, there are phenomena such as the Brexit. People have voted for Brexit, and you've got the Trumpets in the US and people on the continent. What would Karl Marx say about um, these particular trends in ter terms of where workers might go? Well, and I've, I've just written an article for Red Flag, already up on the web, <laughs> about the Alternativa, <laughs> thank you, the Alternativa für Deutschland which has just come second in the state elections in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. It's basically uh, an organisation has, which has fascist content. So, and such organisations on, on a large scale uh, obviously have to have working class support. The working class in Australia, I calculate, in uh, my, I think, the introduction to class and struggle in Australia, is something like two-thirds of the working age population. So to be, a ma to be mass phenomena, both fascist organisations, far-right populist organisations, or for that matter, to be electoral organisations that serve the interests of capital, like the Labor Party, or in a different way, the Liberal Party, have to have some working class support. And the way in which those mainstream capitalist political parties have operated, I think has opened the way to the far right. That is, in a, if we pick Australia, which hopefully most of us have some at least passing familiarity with, there is a fundamental consensus about a whole series of questions, not only to do with oppression, locking up refugees in concentration camps that are increasingly becoming extermination camps, on various Pacific islands, not only, although it's shifting a little bit on the question of allowing LGBTI people to marry, but also on, yeah, much more fundamentally, on questions of economic management, there is, there is a neoliberal consensus. I, I heard um, Bill Shorten, I think, in the press club, uh, uttering some Keynesian platitudes but, uh, last night, but ultimately, uh, there is a neoliberal consensus. There is an agreement that there's no alternative to capitalism, we have to make it work, and a bit of belt tightening is going to be necessary, and enhancing profits is crucial. Those sorts of policies, where they have not led to significant declines in living standards, and there you just have to look uh, at parts of Eastern Europe to Greece, uh, have led to significant increases in all sorts of insecurity, especially employment insecurity. 
and that leads people, including workers, to look around for alternatives. And in Australia, Labor and Liberal governments have both reproduced and reinforced racism in their policies. Legitimised racism, which you know, there, is, there has long been an undercurrent of, uh, in Australia and is in fact a foundation of the appropriation of the original, uh, the, the land of the original owners. Uh, so racism has a, a certain plausibility. Now, of course, the uh, coalition and the Labor Party protest that they are not racists and they don't go as far as Pauline Hanson, but they have played a role in legitimising Pauline Hanson as a conduit for protest over a whole series of issues. Not simply uh, questions of racism. It's not simply that people love Pauline Hanson because she's racist filth, but because Pauline Hanson shoves it up the mainstream parties. So I think that that's at least part of the analysis of the rise of right-wing populism. I wouldn't simply put Brexit into that category straightforwardly. I think Brexit was certainly, for some people, motivated by a sense of, we don't want bloody polls here, uh, but was also uh, a recognition that virtually the entire British capitalist class, not entirely, but almost all of the British capitalist class, its political organisations, its mass media were in favour of staying inside the European Union. And for a lot of people, I think Brexit was a way of saying to that, to that sort of perspective. I mean, it was, it was highly ambiguous, I think. The failure of the left, and in particular the social democratic left, is a part of this problem. I mean, the, the, the social democratic left, the traditional organisations that have real organic connections with the working class like the British Labour Party, the Australian Labour Party, the SPD in Germany and so on, uh, they also bear a large part of the responsibility. Hang on, I've got one down here and then I'll come to you. Uh, it seems that um, um, uh, Marxist um, uh, contribution to women's to an analysis of women's exploitation is limited. Um, I mean, the manifesto states that the bourgeois sees his wife as a mere instrument of production. Um, but um, it, uh, Marxist analysis uh, neglects uh, biological and psychological factors. Um, I mean, uh, women's exploitation existed even before capitalism. And um, uh, it, apart from uh, her woman's role and status in production, her uh, oppression, uh, what lies behind her oppression is uh, her socialization and her internalization of society's construction of women. So. Well, I, I don't think it's entirely true that Marx and Engels themselves, let alone later Marxists, ignored the question of women's oppression. Engels wrote uh, a book called The Origins of the Family, Private Property and the State, which deals with the question of women's oppression, recognises that women's oppression is a product of class society, that is, it predates capitalism, and he argues, and I think there is a sound foundation in contemporary uh, anthropological research to support this, that it emerges with the emergence of class society. Marx and Engels were also very complimentary about the utopian socialist attitude towards women and that the attention that they paid to the question of women's oppression. So they, I think, paraphrase or quote uh, Fourier, uh, to, to the effect that an index of the level of civilization of society is the way, the place of women in that society. So Marxists have 
long been, since Marx and Engels, concerned with the question of women's oppression and have seen it as intimately bound up with social relations, with class relations, while not being straightforwardly reducible to that. And if we look at the work of later Marxists, these ideas have been developed and elaborated to a considerable extent and those who fall into what I would call the real Marxist tradition have been very enthusiastic about the struggles for women's <coughs> liberation, very involved in those sorts of struggles. Uh, this book I called uh, the recovery of, of being about the recovery of Marxism because Grossman uh, went back, who was a, a Polish, Jewish, German uh, Marxist economist, recovered Marx's analysis of economic crisis, which was hiding in plain sight in volume three of Capital, and to some extent even in volume one. He recovered it under circumstances uh, when that analysis was of particular use and relevance in the, in the 1920s. Those kinds of, I'm not just blowing my own trumpet, although I am a bit of one. <laughs> uh, those kinds of recoveries of Marxism have occurred subsequently in relation to other issues. And so there was a recovery of Marx and Engels' analysis of women's oppression during the 1960s and the 1970s. There's a particularly good article by American Marxist Hal Draper of Marx and Engels on women's oppression, which was, I think, first published around 1969. He went back and looked at what they actually said. Much more recently than that, there has been a recovery of Marx, Marx's in particular, uh, ecological thought by um, John Bellamy Foster and Paul Burkett in two books that were, I think, published uh, in relative isolation from each other at the beginning of the 2000s, who went back and looked at what Marx had actually written about human interaction with the natural world and found that this wasn't projecting back. It wasn't, you know, tortured Stalinist analysis. This was uh, recovering in the context of Marx and Engels's work the way in which they had a grasp of the way in which the natural world is part of our um, wider body, our own physical being, and how Marx, drawing on the work of the German, uh, pioneering German biochemist, paid particular attention to the way in which capitalism denudes the soil, robs the soil of uh, its nutritional capacities because it prioritises making profits rather than the future well-being of human beings. So I think that certainly Marxists today, or at least Marxist tendons Rick, are seriously <laughs> concerned uh, about the question of women's oppression and have been engaged with it for a long time. Uh, I mentioned the gains of the Bolshevik Revolution for women. I mean, they took the question of women's emancipation seriously and one of the aspects of the counter-revolution in Russia was precisely the recriminalisation of abortion and handing out medals for having lots of kids. Okay, well, I'm going to take two more, uh, three more, and then I'm going to give you a break. <laughs> <laughs> on my Facebook page, which is, is not exactly reaching the broad popular masses today, <laughs> a very peevish comment about an article in The Australian about how Australian universities <coughs> are being subverted by the Chinese. <coughs> uh, which is true. You know, that there, there is deliberate, direct and indirect state funding of certain aspects of university activity in Australia by the, by the Chinese government. But what I said in a uh, 
a flourish of unintelligible eloquence is the, <laughs> is the invisible... Um, uh, what's it, pachyderm? No, I found the scientific word for the group of animals that elephants belong to. The invisible pachyderm in uh, the enclosed space. And that is, universities are inherently capitalist institutions. They're thoroughly top-down. You know, there, there, there used to be remnants of feudal democracy in universities <laughs> where the professors got, got to have... Used to, exactly. yeah, used to have some collective say. <laughs> That's gone. Uh, they have large corporate bodies in which the CEOs are paid generally fairly obscene sums of money, are thoroughly committed to serving the national interest, which means the interests of the Australian capitalist class, which <coughs> collectively defines the national interest, in which research and teaching, or which those aspects of research and teaching which particularly serve Australian capitalism are prioritised and loud, lauded and uh, encouraged. And where you're, you're encouraged to do policy-relevant research, what does that mean? Well, it's pretty clear what that means. That means serving governments, what, of whatever complexion they are. Uh, and so I look, I look for... I, I don't know that I'll see it because this is, this is a project for communist society, not, not a society in transition to communism. That is a society in which the state still exists, in which workers' power exists and hasn't yet withered away. This is a project for full communism. That is no universities. No universities, no schools, no rigid separation of education in general from the process of engagement in productive activity. Now, this is not an anti-intellectual argument. This is an argument in favour of a diffusion throughout society of the pursuit of knowledge, of the facilities that will enable people with you know, the help of the internet. My, my, my obscure research at the moment, which involves uh, translating and editing stuff from Yiddish and, and Grossman's other works in German, uh, French and Polish, uh, has benefited immensely from stuff that I don't have to go to bloody Warsaw for to check on because it's on the web. The diffusion throughout society of the means of gaining knowledge and developing knowledge, that, I think, um, is the kind of universalisation of the university that I would like to see. In the meantime, you might ask, what do we do? Well, there, I think, uh, unions are extremely important. Extremely important. The problem is that many, most academics, uh, are infected by a disease of individualism and believe that their own shining intellect will eventually be recognised by the bastards who run the institution or at least the head of school <laughs> and they will succeed. Uh, well, statistically, uh, this is unlikely. Uh, and therefore, workers at universities need unions at least as much as construction workers or workers in coal mines need unions. I went here and they went here and I think we're in the right. A couple of questions ago you mentioned uh, Marx's uh, concerns with uh, the interaction of society and nature. Uh, but previously you had talked about uh, general abundance and it's a common view, I don't know whether it's correct, that uh, communists share with capitalists the, uh, uh, the ideal of perpetual uh, economic growth. Have you any comments on that? I mean, so the issue of sustainability and, mm, mm. and uh, these limits to growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the argument that, um, that Marxism is Promethean, which is another way of saying yeah. bad. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I don't think that that's the case. Uh, well, you know, that, that's predictable. Why don't I think that's the case? Well, the, the, the purpose of Marxism is, is that it's the theory and practice of working class liberation and therefore, I would argue, the liberation of humanity. That means 
that it's about making life better for human beings. And part of life being better for human beings is you know, that there's, there's still a planet. That's very important. <laughs> I'm not of the view that uh, technological advance is inherently detrimental to human welfare. It comes back to the context in which technological development is uh, deployed and to what ends. And under capitalism, the ends are overwhelmingly the ends of making profits. That's the logic of capitalism. Make profits in order to be able to reinvest, to compete with other profit makers, in order to be able to make profits in the future, in order to make uh, more investment. The logic of capital accumulation. That, I think, is what is destroying the planet, rather than the, de the development of technology. Now, there are some technologies that I regard as really, really dangerous and unlikely to serve human interests, and I would include uh, the uh, nuclear industry in that category. But technology can actually economise in a positive sense in the use of natural resources, can actually reduce the, the burdens that are placed on the environment while at the same time producing more of the stuff, whether it's material or immaterial stuff, that is important for human beings to have rewarding and healthy lives. So uh, I, I reject the idea that, that Marxism is Promethean. Um, I did my homework and I read the manifesto. In fact, I reread it after 30 years. But I, I'd forgotten how funny it was in parts. <laughs> uh, especially when he's talking about love, family, and the bourgeois, love marriage and the bourgeois family. You know, some of it's delightfully outrageous. But one of his is, our bourgeoisie, not content with having wives and daughters of the proletarians at their disposal, not to speak of common prostitutes, take the greatest pleasure in seducing each other's wives. Brackets, ha, ladies with a haze. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Engels and Marx's practice wasn't so good either when it comes to women and in marriage. You know, he had a long-term affair with Mary Burns and then he eventually married her sister. And, of course... And Marx had an illegitimate son and, with his uh, housekeeper. And, and Mary Burns, of course, was a used to work in Engels' father's factory and she was a chief informant for his work on conditions of the working class, which in my opinion is the first ethnography, one of the best. But in the great traditions of all eth male ethnographers, he makes no mention of his chief informant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so, but the other thing, he was also interested in anthropology and he read England and Morgan and that's when he put that footnote to the you know, history of the uh, history of society, the history of all class struggles, when he put Britain history. Yeah. So first of all, I wonder what your, uh, what your uh, views on that are, is that the history of all society is not the history of class struggles. Yeah. And secondly, what would be your manifesto in terms of love, marriage and the family? <laughs> <laughs> what, to, to deal with your context first, Chris, <laughs> Marx and Engels were not uh, perfect, they were not paragons in all respects, just as workers today, and even, dare I suggest it, you lot, are not absolute paragons. That, I don't think, detracts from the achievements of Marx and Engels in synthesising working class experience and bringing to bear the heritages of that democratic, <coughs> those democratic and socialist traditions, the works of earlier political economists, the work of Hegel, uh, to the cause of the working class. Uh, and similarly, workers uh, are in capitalist society. You know, our heads have been mucked up by capitalism and to have people who aren't uh, slightly ratty or very ratty will probably require a generation after the revolution. On the question of... Um, Women's, women's emancipation. Well, I, I think that struggles for equality in the here and now are extremely important and are part of the struggle to make revolution possible. 
because one of the greatest obstacles to workers' revolution is the way in which the working class is divided into nations, into, into races, not biological categories, fictional categories, and into genders. And that is used to divide and rule. And the struggle against racism, the struggle against the oppression of women, the struggle against all forms of oppression is a necessary part of the struggle to make revolution successful. Marx wrote about... Uh, the way in which our heads are filled with the muck of ages. But they saw the, the process of revolution itself, not only the, the, the actual achievements of the revolution, but the process of revolution itself being something that can change consciousness. And in fact, short of revolution, the process of being involved in struggle, feeling that alongside people who have the same interests as you, you can change the world. This is transformative. And the transformation of human consciousness about our relations with other people and crucially the relations between the sexes I think is part of the learning process of struggle, a learning process which will reach its crescendo when the workers of the world unite because they have nothing to lose but bad chains. I think that's a crescendo for us as well. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.